This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Report. Let's do the show, folks. Gum, gum, gum. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton. Uh, So glad that you've joined us for yet another episode. We've got a really, I mean, honestly, one of the uh, episodes I've been most excited about to share. And I've been, this has been in the works actually for a couple months. Um, We've got a special guest, archaeologist, Star Wars author, Dr. David West Reynolds joining us. And he's going to talk all about his time at Lucasfilm back in the 90s and the time of creating the prequels and, and how we got there, which is quite an interesting trek through Tunisia, quite literally. Hope you guys enjoy the interview. This is the Star Wars Report Podcast. Boring conversation anyway. All right, guys, I'm really excited. I, I Actually, that might be a slight understatement. I'm, ex- I'm extraordinarily excited to have on our next guest. Uh, it's Dr. David West Reynolds. You know, he's an archaeologist. He's kind of like a real-life Indiana Jones. He's an archaeologist, big Star Wars fan, and, you know, there's a thing called, there's a thing now. It's fan tourism. But long before, you know, people like myself were heading out to Ireland and Skellig Michael to see uh, Luke Skywalker's uh, you know, locations in exile. Um, there was there was Tunisia and the original filming locations that were at one time lost to time, and this is the man who found them. Um, we'd like to welcome to the program uh, Dr. David West Reynolds. Thanks, man. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you on Star Wars Report. I'm I've um, I've been a big fan of your work, and I and I think it's kind of chronically underappreciated, and I think in general. Your your connection with Star Wars and uh, that specific era of Star Wars fandom, its resurgence in the '90s, is um, is something that's kind of lost to time and culture now because now we think of Star Wars in the Disney context, and it, and it's complete ubiquitous cultural. You know, it's it's everywhere. But there was a time where people would just like occasionally ask George, "Are you going to make uh, the next movie?" Like, oh, someday. Uh, and that's where <laughs> exactly. that's that's roughly the time where you through a strange set of circumstances, find yourself on the hunt for the original filming locations. Walk us through that story. How on earth did you end up in Tunisia? Okay, so I'm an archaeologist. I'm finishing up my PhD in classical archaeology at the University of Michigan. And I was studying ancient Roman city structure And it was a great dissertation. I was reading a marble map that one of the emperors had commissioned that had every ground floor room in the city of Rome carved into this marble map. It was 40 feet high and 60 feet wide. So thousands upon thousands of rooms, every staircase, every closet. So I learned how to decode this map and study the urban structure of ancient Rome, which is great fun but didn't get me the field action that I wanted to to prove myself as an archaeologist. So I'd worked in North Africa. I'd worked in Tunisia. I'd worked in Egypt. And a project in Egypt, we were tracing Roman caravan routes from the Nile to the Red Sea across the eastern desert. Mm. And one of the things that the project found was an action figure from Roman times. It was a little (laughs) rag doll that had been preserved by the desert. And I'm looking at this thing. It's almost 2,000 years old. And I'm thinking the desert preserves everything. And I I had dreamed about someday going to the Tunisia locations just like just because to, to be in Tunisia would be to be like on planet Tatooine. But mm. I never dreamed that there might be something still there remaining from the production until I was in Egypt looking at that little doll. And that put the germ in my head of there might still be traces left of the production 
And this would be worth undertaking a project to go and see. So that's that's what put me on the trail of it. Wow. And this was the, uh, catch us up. So this what what when would this have been? Because this is this is before the prequels, before but after obviously long after the original trilogy. It's in the fallow years, Padawan. And <laughs> Star Wars was dormant and you know, we hoped it was gonna come back someday, but we you know, you didn't really know. And so this is ninety five. Mm. And Star Wars Insider, thanks to John Bradley Snyder, who started that as uh, as an independent production called Star Wars Generation. It, he was the voice crying in the wilderness that, you know, hey, we're still out there. We are the Star Wars generation and, and things have moved on, but it's still important to us. John started that and Lucasfilm saw what he was doing. And instead of shutting him down, they said, why don't you run a magazine for us? Create Star Wars Insider. And he launched the whole thing. He was the perfect person to do it. So... My project ended up connected with the Insider, and that's that's how it ends up connected to Lucasfilm. But, but it for me it went back to the gum cards. So so you you are a prequel guy. Mm. So you you had the internet in your fandom. When I started this stuff out, all we had was the Topps gum cards. It was mm. the only way to revisit the world of the film. So I would look at those Topps gum cards and just fantasize about this world that I'd seen on the screen, and. The you know an archaeologist Riley we can't enjoy a lot of films because an archaeologist is trained to look closely right yeah, I mean sure. we look at we look at all the details and and the backstory has to matter it has to be right it's rare that you get a Hollywood production that goes to the trouble of getting those layers in a believable way and I'm looking at Star Wars on screen and it just blows me away because it felt so real. And that's not necessarily something that's that's that important in every production. In a lot of fantasies, it's it's not necessarily realism. But in the first film, before the special edition, in the first film, that realism was so impressive to me. And that's what put it in my mind that I want to be there. I want to set foot in that place. And I was looking at one of the Star Wars cards from Topps, um, 3PO's Desert Trek. And I looked at that and I realized, because on the, on the back of one of the cards, it said, the movie had been filmed in a country called Tunisia. And in my young mind, I thought, well, if you could go to Tunisia, then it must be that that would be like being on Tatooine. And, and so that thought from my young self got combined with the... To make me think, maybe I could actually go for this. Mm. And and so in your mind, what what takes you from the like oh that it'd be cool to be in Tunisia where you find yourself as a student an archaeology student in the field um it I mean that's that's still an extra leap to you know find some of these sites how do you actually begin that process of like because I, I, I have the sneaking suspicion there aren't exactly like GPS coordinates that you can just like google which obviously exactly and so so the truth is like i don't usually tell the whole story but the truth is i went on a university of michigan project in the early 90s and when the project was finished i thought i'm in tunisia i'm gonna look around and see what i could find and i traveled all across tunisia and deep into the southern deserts but what you realize very quickly is a country is a big place to go when you're looking for like (laughs) some sand dunes (laughs) <laughs> and uh, some canyons, and they're like, "Yeah, we got canyons. Uh, what do you want?" You know, and and I'm trying to guess at where would the crew have stayed. You know, what roads existed in 1976, and and it's a whole country. Well, it was impossible. Well, of course, I didn't find anything. I went to so many dune fields. I went to canyons hiking for days on end. Um, I almost got killed. There was there was a person that, that I mean, we got into a fight, and he was saying, "You know, nobody's going to find your body if you die here because they'll never know what happened to you." I mean, it was it was crazy stuff. And so I came back from that realizing I would have to do a lot more preparation if well, I was really going to find David, anything. David, I, I have to say that the, the Junlin wastes are not to be traveled lightly. Okay, sorry, I had to. Um. And, you know, I, I should have known that, right? I mean, shouldn't that, that phrase have been floating around? But, uh, well, no, you yeah, that stuff really let's, All right, let's, let's, pause, let's pause for a second, though. That's kind of insane. I'm not going to – I, I maybe this is maybe this is the adventuresome spirit of a, of a young archaeology student. But the idea of, like, you know, I wrapped up my other thing. I'm just going to traipse around Tunisia. Um, like, did you have like a posse with you? Was this, or was this a, a pure solo journey? No, brother, this is just me. And this is the, the, the pocket change I could scrape together, um, just what I could afford. So I'm sleeping on the road and on the side of the road or staying with locals whenever I can. 
and I, I covered a lot of territory. And, you know, my dream was to see evaporator on the horizon or something, but I knew all of that stuff was probably taken away. I just wanted to be in the same environments. But even getting that was so challenging because you're talking about thousands of square miles. So how'd you narrow it down? So narrowing it down turns out to be the science of it. That's what I learned in Egypt. So in Egypt, I learned you don't just go searching across the whole desert. You do everything you can to cut down the search territory. So you narrow things down to where can the camels get water, you know, because the Romans are not going to be going someplace where the camels can't get water. So now you've cut things way down. Are there any literary references to any oases? And so that cuts things down. You know, they've used this oasis so you're not going to look more than 25 miles from that so you're you're drastically cutting down the territory and i knew that's what i'd have to do to to go back on a serious expedition so i'm preparing myself like that and and also i mean one of the first things i do is i get in touch with lucasfilm and i tell them that i'm going to try and do this as an archaeologist as a project and they were they were helpful back before the internet you could call companies like this because they didn't get hundreds of calls from nutcases Mm-hmm. Places were hard enough to get to, and people had self-restraint that you just wouldn't bother a company, you know, if you, unless you had a good reason. So you could just call Lucasfilm. And, and so I did and talked to them, and they said, you know, they, there's no information. The archivists looked for me. Oh, they wow. Looked, and they, they said, we'll, be, we'll, we'll help you if we can. But they came back to me about a week later and said, there's no information in the archives on any of those locations. They were wilderness sites for the most part. And, um, you know, we know there was the town of Matamata where Luke Skywalker's underground home was filmed. And I knew that from the, the gun cards. But that was it. That was it. And they said, we're sorry. The best we can do is put you in touch with Star Wars production manager Robert Watts. He was the location scout. Mm, and okay. they said, I don't know if he'll help you, but we'll give you his, his contact information. You can write him a letter and see. And I write him my letter and Robert Watts calls me from Canada where he's working on a film and he's very kind he's a great great guy he's he has an incredible career in hollywood he's worked on all these major films i mean he was location scouting for james bond in 2001 and uh, he's got an uh, just an unbelievable career and this man takes the time out to call me because he appreciated my letter so i'm thrilled but i get i get information like oh david david yeah so luke skywalker's home yeah out on the soul Flats, right? Yes, yes, Mr. Watts. It's like, right, well, I remember every morning we got up from the hotel, we, we go to drive out to that, and I'm pretty sure that, I'm pretty sure that was on the left. <laughs> and I get, I'm, yeah. I'm writing, and I'm waiting, and he's like, and, and what else? And he's like, no, that's it. You know, and just, that one was on the left. And, and that's the clues I've got. But I did get things like, you know, you know, we filmed Moss Eisley on an island. Moss Eisley was an island. It wasn't inland. And it's like, I would never have thought to look for Moss Eisley on an island. So that really cuts down my, my search territory. And he couldn't tell me where, but he said, I, I think it was near one of the ferries. I'm not sure. But I got clues like that. He, he very generously went through, and I had my list. We talked about what he could remember. So it was very little to go on, but it was much better than nothing. Mm. And so it was that preparation. And, I mean, those are the days where you want images that aren't aren't in the, the Lucasfilm publicity library. I'm taking film pictures off the television from my laser disc because <laughs> that's what you had to do. Yeah, There's no frame grabs. So it, it, something that, that uh, I... I tell people about when I when I tell this story in lectures is that before GPS and before the internet, information could get lost so easily, and most locations got lost because nobody's putting putting money into keeping record of where those things are. Any film, you know, where they where they shot the desert scenes of two thousand and one, nobody knows but Robert Watts. There's there's not an archive for things like that, and you don't have the internet to file all that information and you don't have a gps to mark a location it's very easy for these things to get lost so what happened to the star wars locations was what happened to every movie it wasn't like special neglect yeah and that's that's the point that people don't realize is they they blame lucasfilm and it's like no 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 there was there was no reason for them to archive that information so i went back armed with all of that information and just the determination that i'm not leaving this country until i until i find as much of these as i possibly can and I had my search zones for each one narrowed down. And this time I had a buddy. I had a dinosaur paleontologist. Dinosaur hunters are <laughs> of course you did. anywhere. Mm-hmm. So this guy was up for it. He was up for an adventure. I'd hunted dinosaurs with him in, in the badlands of, California, of Alberta. 
and uh, I knew he could take it and was not going to fold up. And so that's that's what got us to Tunisia. I feel like this is a great time to kind of help help listeners paint a little bit of a pic, uh, picture about Tunisia itself. So you're devising these search zones. What does that actually look like? And, and, and sort of walk us through the geography of Tunisia and its location on the planet. Because some, some of us listening may not even know, like, um, you know, what part of Northern Africa it was and why it was chosen by Lucasfilm. But Excellent. Great question. So North Africa is a hodgepodge of territories ranging in danger and interest. Um, so Tunisia is this lovely little stretch of territory. The country is about as big as the state of Florida. And it's nestled right between Algeria and Libya, both of where you will get your head cut off if you show up. <laughs> and so you really want to be sure you're getting off the right at the right port. <laughs> and it's right across from Italy. So like the, you go from the, the, the boot of Italy sort of points to Tunisia. And it's, it's this incredibly diverse little country. It's got all different kinds of territory. So it was a Roman province. So there's Roman ruins. There's ruined Roman cities everywhere. There's a Roman amphitheater. It looks like the Colosseum. But there's also gorgeous desert scenery. And there's rocks and canyon scenery. And then there's also this beautiful seacoast. And it was, it was, at the time, a secular government. So it wasn't run by as an islamic state and therefore was much more welcoming to the outside world so it was it was sane it was beautiful it was diverse and welcoming and the food was great (laughs) so (laughs) tunisia is a wonderful place to visit and it's very easily connected through paris because it uh, used to be a french colony so tunisia is remarkably easy to visit for for it being a north african location and that makes sense as to why that would be chosen by by the production and the crew is just ease of access Exactly. Like, you know, the Robert Watts was the production manager for Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. And one of the first things he asked when he got the script was to say, OK, it takes place in Egypt. But he said, do we see the, the, the pyramids or the Sphinx or the Nile? And nothing in the script specified that we had to see those things. Then he said, OK, we don't have to shoot in Egypt. And you don't want to if you don't have to, because Egypt is very difficult to travel and work in compared to Tunisia. And he said, we can create Egypt in Tunisia much more economically. It's easy to travel in. We, we'll just fake the Egyptian part. And they did it so well that I mean, I'm an e- Egyptian archaeologist. I've worked in Egypt. And Raiders of the Lost Ark looks like it was shot in Egypt. So they did a great job. Tunisia is a very filmmaker friendly country. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so you're you're at this point, you've got your buddy and you you're narrowing down your search zones. What was what would you say is the 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 biggest um sense of fulfillment, the biggest discovery as you go through this process? Was there was there really a sort of aha moment? Well, like the the first aha moment was like the, I mean, Riley, you got to understand this feels like a fool's errand. That's the biggest challenge. It's not any of the logistics, yeah. but the idea that this is crazy, that there's no point to this no one's ever done something like this so it must be it must not be possible and even if it was possible what if you did find a location so what do you think you know it's not like you're in the movie and it's it's there won't be any actors there people just looked at me when i said i wanted to do this like why that's a waste of time and it wasn't until i did this and showed that this is fun i did something that fulfilled something in my spirit that other people could see oh oh maybe i would like that too but so the the real object obstacle was just this the fact that there was no precedent and i could find nothing at all anywhere so when i found the cantina that was the first place the first secure location that i found the cantina in the the seaport town where they filmed moss eisley Mm. that was just hugely validating that it really was here this was moss eisley plaza and as much as it's been changed there's still some pieces of star wars and that's when it also blew my mind to find out that there are pieces of the set still here. I mean, they didn't dismantle everything. They left some of it. And I'm finding pieces of the set of Star Wars. Luke Skywalker walked through this doorway, and it's still here. That blew my mind. Dang. That was surprising. That's, that's incredible. Well, and, and what were some of the, the pieces that you, sent, that you saw that sort of gave it away? So the, uh, well, the, the cantina I had to identify from a little window on the side of the dome. So um, when they pull up to the cantina, there's, there's a great uh, publicity shot of it. Star Wars was beautifully 
perfectly covered by John Jay on the stills. If you compare that with any of the other Star Wars movies, you will see that there's a wonderful library of stills for Star Wars. And that's because John Jay, the unit photographer, was just brilliant. He was on top of everything. And so the, the, the top set reflects his talents. And it means that it was a wonderful set of reference for me. So you've got the droids standing outside the cantina saying, I don't like the look of this. There's a funny little window on the side of the dome that was distinctive and that's what pinned the cantina but i start looking around and in junk piles i see fiberglass and i see vacuform plastic and so like as they walk into the cantina when luke says you know are you sure about this place you see three drunk jawas sacked out in front of the cantina so the door that they were sacked out in front of was still there the door frame that luke walks through to go into the cantina was still there so that I just never imagined that that was going to be the case. The little domes they'd added, the production took real Tunisian architecture. That was the whole reason Robert Watts and John Barry sold George on the idea of shooting in Tunisia was because the natural architecture in Tunisia in, in a few spots, the native Ibadite architecture, the particular style they have there, it was foreign, but not, it didn't look Arab, it didn't look Greek, it was kind of a blend, it didn't have any specific decorations that gave it away as any yeah. particular earth culture. So they thought, we'll just come in and dress the existing architecture, and that's going to give us production value far beyond the very small budget we actually had to work with. So Norman Reynolds is the, the, the he does the, the construction side of things, but Roger Christian gets the job as set decorator of creating the used universe look and it's so careful he's using all of these pieces he and john barry working together to dress this existing architecture and turn it into moss eisley with the minimum of effort but they disguise its origin so well that you'd think the whole thing was constructed for the production oh wow so and it, and it, it makes sense because it, it kind of it creates that look that's so um iconic now that element of uh tatooine that we've now, you know, as, as, as fans, we've seen it in, throughout the different films and, of course, then reconstructed in glorious 4K detail in the most recent Battlefront game and everything in between. It's kind of amazing how um, it's an element of local culture that's now exploded into the mainstream just because of Star Wars and, like, all of these instantly iconic shots. I, I, saw, I, I saw a shot of you where you, you did find, where when you found the homestead and you found the very spot where Luke Skywalker gazed off into the twin sunset. I just have to ask you, what, what was that like when you found that spot? Um, that I mean, honestly, one of the most iconic moments in the entire film. It's the literal you know, call to adventure moment, but it, it, in, a, in a location. It, it was the hardest thing to find because you've got hundreds of square miles of salt flat. They all look the same. And since Star Wars had been filmed, German off-roaders had been coming out to the salt flat and using it for, you know, just driving four-wheel vehicles and Land Rovers. So I had, I had hundreds of tracks to follow. And I just had to spend weeks tracking down each of these tracks into the desert, into the salt, and finding whether it led to anything. And I've been looking for crater rings that are like a foot and a half high. That's it. And so this is, again, every one of these things, as I went across Tunisia, each new place that I searched for was a whole different set of search techniques. I had to use geological evidence here. You know, in Moss Eisley, it was architectural evidence. Um, I was using geology to find the jungle wastes. And with the salt flats, I was using logistics. You know, where could the film crew get to? And that's actually when Robert Watts's clues actually came in handy. Mm. I mean, if I'm going from the Tozur Sahara Palace Hotel and we're driving out towards Algeria. Well, if I'm only looking on the left, that that's cuts my search territory in half. I'm not looking on the right. So that was really helpful. But yeah. finding that was so hard, and nobody with me thought that was possible until I saw these ripples of heat ripples on the horizon. And it was from, you know, two miles away. But as soon as I saw them, like my heart jumped because I knew this is it. I have found it. This is Luke Skywalker's homestead. And I walked out there the whole time. I didn't have to see it. I knew we had found it. And to, to, to get to the edge of those crater rings, I mean, this is after a long day, after the end of many long days. But I stood there and I felt my life changing. I felt that, you know, where I had been, who I was, that was different than what I was about to become because nobody had done this before. It was really unprecedented. And I mean, nobody had set foot here since Mark Hamill left that site. Mm -hmm. And I felt all of that. I felt, you know, it was like being on the moon. 
I'd spent all the money I had to get here, you know, and there was intense pressure on every minute of time I'm spending here. But and and it seemed like like Luke feels where he feels like I have no direction. I I can't ever get out of here. It's I don't know where I'm going. And that that moment is where he's he's feeling that he's looking out to the, to the the suns. The only beautiful or inspiring thing in his life is something far away that he can never touch. But we know as the audience that that adventure is about to find him. And when I'm standing there, it's sunset, you know, and it's it's all happening around me, and it's. I, it's like I walked into the movie screen. I hoped to come and look at scenes that looked like what I saw in the Star Wars cards. I didn't dream that I was going to walk into the movie. I, yeah. I didn't know that was going to happen. That's what that felt like. It is. It's so fascinating how, um, and, I, and I think it's different for different people, but but at least speaking for me, how, how in my mind, in my heart, it, there are certain stories that have, have come, certain mythologies that have kind of implanted themselves in 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 myself and, and shaped how I view the world. The stories of Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, um, the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. These, these stories that I just grew up with that have sort of became a part of me. And in the element of Star Wars, there's a, there's a very powerful visual element. So for myself, when I've... Um, the few sites I've ever been to, uh, David, are, are the first time I ever did this was um, I was traveling with my, my family, with my mom and dad and sister, uh, right after we graduated college. We all did a big family trip. It was sort of like one last time, big family trip together. And, um, and there was a sort of sense of finality to it throughout that trip. But I'll, I'll never forget just um, entering, uh, going off to Skellig Michael, right off the coast of uh, Ireland, and, and just seeing the, the cultural power of the history that exists in that island and these monks that you know, made a living, eked out a living on this remote you know, island hiding from the Viking mm-hmm. warriors. Um, and at the same time, there's that, that's even separate from the impact of, of seeing what I saw on film in The Last Jedi. But frankly, that has nothing, doesn't hold a candle to when I um, did a road trip up I-10 to go find and, and experience some of the filming locations for Jedi up in the Humboldt Red, uh, Red Woods. Yes, um, and, yes. And I, and I just, it's hard to describe... Because in in some ways, when you're saying it out loud, you're like, this, "Is this ridiculous?" Like, I'm just going to the places where it's cool trees because you saw the cool trees in the movie. But for me, it sort of it 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 really surrounded myself with and removed me from the distractions um, of the real world that could kind of put me back in touch with these stories that have have changed my life so much growing up. And in a way that has never been the case going to a Star Wars convention or reading a Star Wars book or watching the movies, it's, it, it is a really surreal experience to be standing where the film was filmed. I'm so glad you appreciate that because, you know, nobody did when I set out. I mean, I talked to other fans and I didn't get enthusiasm. I just got that's pretty crazy. Well, I'll have a good time, but you know, it's just weird. And, but, but I'm glad once you've experienced it, you know what that is. It's, it's the same as like, I've got friends who, you know, I had I, I one brilliant friend who went and who saw Conan and came back away from that movie thinking Conan has a great sword. I need a great sword. I need to learn how to forge. So he buys a forge and metal and forges his own sword. And he's got a sword that's brilliantly made, and he forged that thing. And to him, that's entering the universe of Conan, you know, a hand-forged sword that he made. And that's the way he vivified the movie for himself. There are so many ways. We used to just approach things as collectors. And, you know, that's a wonderful way. It works for many of us. But now we've got cosplay, and now we've got pilgrimage, and there are other ways whether it's craftsmanship or, you know, all these other approaches, whatever vivifies your experience. My quest was to live the experience of the movie more fully. That's, that's all it boils down to. And that's what you lived in, in the Humboldt Mountains, right? Yeah. You know that. It's, it's vivifying the experience. So whenever I study these things, whether it's archaeology or Star Wars, it's, I'm trying to get as deeply into that experience as possible. And it just turned out that the locations were a very powerful avenue for that for me. Oh, for sure, for sure. And, and kind of rewinding, you talk about that moment, uh, finding the homestead. It kind of does end up being a transformative moment for you because fast forward... Um, you find yourself in the hallways at Lucasfilm. How on earth did that happen? I get home from this expedition, 
And as an archaeologist, you go on an expedition, well, you write up your findings and you publish them, right? But I can't take this to Archaeology Magazine. So I think, well, I'll try Star Wars Insider, see if they're interested. Well, you know, as a researcher, you submit your findings and you, you wait to hear what the editor thinks. And the editor of this journal called me and said, dude, that and John Bradley Snyder just loved this. He'd never heard of anything like it. And he said, I'm giving you the cover. I mean, this is the lead story. This is fantastic. And because it was in Star Wars Insider, exactly at the time, and this is one of these fake things, just at the time when George Lucas had said to Rick McCallum, uh, Rick, you know, we're going to be shooting the prequels uh, eventually here. And uh, I want you to go to Tunisia and revisit the locations that I used and find me some new ones. I'm going to need some slave quarters. But, you know, size all that up for me. And let's see how things look now. And we'll, we'll scout things up. And Rick <laughs> says, okay. And goes to the archives and says, hey, I need all the location information from Tunisia. Okay, guys. And they say what they told me, that we don't have any. Well, you don't go back to George and say, we don't have any information. Nobody does that. And Rick's trying to figure out, now, am I going to have to slog all over this place? What am I going to do? Somebody throws a magazine on his desk. <laughs> at Skywalker Ranch. Yes, really. And says, Rick, didn't you say something about locations in Tunisia? Look, some kid went and found them all. And he said, you have got to be kidding me. Although there's probably a little more. I was going to say, knowing, but, knowing Rick, is, I'm guessing it's a little more colorful. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it was, it was richly colorful. But you get the idea. And so I get a warning call from John Snyder. It's like, dude, Rick McCallum's going to call you. And we end up negotiating a deal where I become his location scout because they didn't have anyone else to go to. And it was going to save them an incredible amount of time. Mm -hmm. So it was, this, it was this great conversation where, you know, he wanted to fax me some maps and said, you know, I'm going to fax you some Tunisian maps. Mark X is on these things. Okay, and just fax them <laughs> back to me. We're just really going to help us. Love you. This is great. And I, I'm really excited because I'm talking to Lucasville. But like... I'm broke. I mean, I spent everything I could, everything I had on this. And it was, you know, a project it took me weeks and weeks. And I think, am I gonna, am I gonna stare down Lucasfilm? Is that what you're going to do when you get a chance when Lucasfilm comes calling? But I call Rick back and I say, Rick, you're an important guy. I, you know, I don't want to waste any of your time. Maps are very imprecise and X is so vague and country's so big. You don't need a map. <laughs> you need a guide. <laughs> Well played. And uh, there's this pause, and it's like, so that's how it's going to be, is it? <laughs> and I say, you know, yes, and he respects that and says, well, you know, but I'm leaving in like two weeks, you know, can you get packed? And I said, hey, I'm an archaeologist. I'm always ready to go. And I was. So he it was like, if you're really up for this, then come on, let's go. And he was not sure what to expect because it was so bizarre that somebody would have done this. But we end up having such a good time together in North Africa um, that, I mean, that was, if I thought the first expedition changed my life, the real watershed was Tunisia with Rick McCallum because he taught me a whole different way to be. He had, he had confidence that you can see from the moon. I mean, yeah. you know, if you've dealt with Rick, is that right if you, if you interviewed him i i have, have you, not but you you we just him? got off uh, a couple of weeks ago i had a chance to talk to jw rensler who i know was at lucasfilm around the same time and and he and he very much characterized rick as a is he's, he's a classic hollywood producer in the sense that we don't really get anymore he's like he's the guy who gets it all done that is absolutely the case so like you know when a picture gets best picture oscar that goes to the producer because he's the one who made it happen and rick mccallum made it all happen it was it was incredible to watch this guy in action. And I mean, I was getting a PhD, but, but seeing him in action just taught me about a world I'd never known before. He lived so richly and powerfully and confidently that he just accomplished so much for himself and for everyone around him. It was incredible to watch. And it just, it, it, it you know, this is like the, you know, when this, when the student is ready, this teacher will appear. He taught me a new way and we got along so well together too that that was neither of us expected that and that works out into an offer of skywalker ranch and i've just finished a phd that i spent six years on i'm planning to be a college professor why would i do that mm. these were some of the best communicators in the world i wasn't i would not do this for fandom i mean i had a serious career to manage but 
I thought, these people know communication. They can reach everyone. I want to learn that from the best in the business. So I took the job for it to be at full-time at Skywalker Ranch on that basis. And once I get to Skywalker Ranch, I have this unique position as, oh, Rick McCallum brought this guy. So I could do anything I wanted <laughs> at Skywalker Ranch. It was incredible. It gives you, I mean, it gives you so much freedom uh, right off the bat. What were what were some of the highlights? Because we're going right into the, I guess, I, I mean, what, we're a year out, maybe two years out from the filming of The Phantom Menace? Right. So, so we're, it's, uh, we've just, by the time I'm hired, we have just done the special editions. So Rick was working on the special editions when I first met him in North Africa, and they work on those projects while I finish up my PhD and some other affairs. So by the time I take the job, we've seen the special editions, which were the trial run for the prequels. George wanted this mm-hmm. effects capabilities in place before he was prepared to make those movies. But once, once he had proven to himself that I have that ability to put on film anything I can imagine, he was going ahead. So I was part of the team hired specifically to launch the prequels. So the, the, the special editions had been a trial run, but now we were about to do full-on production. So Lucasfilm was picking its team, and it was an incredible time to be at the ranch because the world was so excited that Star Wars was coming back to life, and Lucasfilm could pick anyone they wanted. So to be there was to be surrounded by this incredible talent. Everybody you ran into just knew their game, and it was such a pleasure to work with these people in this this setting where everything looks like a matte painting. You can't believe any of this stuff. So, so the Skywalker Ranch, I'm sure Rensler talked to you about it. It's just, it looks like a movie, the whole place. And they give me an office. So I get an octagonal office. Five of the walls are glass. And I've got a huge stone fireplace. And who's my office mate? There's only two of us in this giant octagonal office. I'm creating StarWars.com. And the other guy over there is somebody you may have heard of named Steve Stansweet. Oh, yeah. So he's my office mate the whole time I'm at Skywalker Ranch. And he's just like one of the best people you could ever meet. Just super cool guy. Um, Amazing to work with. So it was just superlative land because it was Skywalker Ranch at its height. George is back in the saddle. George is going to make a new Star Wars movie. It was thrilling, exciting. And I had this carte blanche to go anywhere I wanted and get into anything I wanted. So, you know, let's go to the archives. I want to see the lost cut of Star Wars that John Jimson did that that uh, caused such fuss. You know, it's a totally different cut of Star Wars with like, I don't know, 30, 40% different fans. You know, I want to get into the archives and check out the props and all of these things. I mean, I just did anything I want to. I could go to George's private theater in the basement of the main house and say, put on Star Wars for me and watch it. And mm. stuff like that was just my daily life at the ranch. It's crazy. And it's funny because you find yourself at the center of what, what George had worked through the whole original trilogy to build. Like his whole vision, really the whole funding that he wanted to use for Empire and Jedi was was for the ranch, for this oasis, this Hollywood North that would um, that could allow creatives and filmmakers escape the clutches of corporate, you know, L.A. And, and you find yourself in the center of it. That's amazing. It was. The, the only disappointment was that we, a lot of us had thought that it was going to be just what you said, like a community, but it was very much just, you know, it wasn't a place where other people could create, except the Skywalker Sound. So we had Skywalker Sound where, you know, James Cameron comes to mix Titanic while we were there. And, yeah. you know, you run into Robert Redford working on his projects and that's cool. But um, I was surprised that it was it was pretty restrictive. Uh, that, you know, we're just doing Star Wars and we can't shoot any actual footage. Like, I did a whole little documentary that had to go in, back into the can and get hidden because, um, you know, the, the locals did not want George doing any production at the ranch. So anything that even sounded like it might have been a soundstage, you know, would get George in trouble. So we had to we had to put a nix on all of that stuff. Um, so, we you know, it was you're walking a tightrope of appearances, um, which was too bad. But as far as the Star Wars productions go, though, you had everything in that art department with Doug Chang and Terrell Whitlatch and uh, Robert Barnes. I mean, it was it was just wonderful to watch these people in action. And I have to tell you this story. So I'm at my desk. I, I built StarWars.com from just about nothing. And I was pretty proud of that. In two years, we were setting records with that site. Mm. And the, uh, the, the publicist, 
Amy Cole comes bounding into my office one day. She's this glamorous Hollywood wood blonde, um, looks like you would expect a studio publicist to look beautiful, and um, comes in and she says, how tall are you? And I say, I'm like 5'11", I think. She's like, get down to the archives. They need you there. You're, you're late. And <laughs> this is the kind of thing that happens. So I get down to the archives and I said, where am I going? Do I need a camera? She said, it's for a fitting. Hurry up. They'll tell you. I get down there and there's somebody holding a jetpack. And I've seen that jetpack before. And there's somebody holding a blue-gray jumpsuit. And they say, oh, is it you? Here, put this on. And it's the Boba Fett costume from Empire. And they never get this out of the box because there's only, I think it was like two and a half suits or what remained after Empire and Jedi. And they're so complicated that it wasn't like Darth Vader or Stormtroopers or Imperial officers where there'd been a lot of copies made. This was it. They'd never been able to copy them because they were so you know, detailed and intricate. Yeah. And, but it was one of George's favorite characters. And they wanted to surprise him at the Smithsonian. When it was going to have the first showing of all of the props and costumes and the ILM models, that uh, we were that was the first display of all of those things in public, and so they were going to have a big show at the beginning at the VIP gala opening, and they had Dave Prowse record uh, not Dave Prowse sorry James Earl Jones record uh-huh. the lines for Darth Vader, and Darth Vader stage surrounded by stormtroopers and imperial officers, and I see you have captured my Tie Fighters. We're in Washington. DC, the <laughs> VIP event, black tie. I've been in my, my tuxedo all night covering the event for StarWars.com. But Darth Vader goes up to the stage. I hit my watch. I go in and make my change. Darth Vader's talking. I get in position. He's saying, I see you have captured my TIE fighters, my Imperial walkers. But to make sure that nothing happens to these Imperial possessions, to protect them, I have hired the best bounty hunter in the galaxy. And a spotlight comes on in the gallery up near the Spirit of St. Louis and the Wright Flyer. And it's me as Boba Fett with my EE-33 blaster rifle leveled at half the senators in Washington. (laughs) Can you believe that stuff? Many people might be jealous of your position right there. (laughs) It Um, was incredible. And this was back before cosplay was was like people didn't do that back no. then so it was fascinating to walk through this black tie audience and watch everybody treat boa fett not like a movie character but they treated him like he was a dangerous son of a gun <laughs> i, <laughs> I mean bet. senators would look at that visor and like they give him birth <laughs> it was fascinating i mean it it's, was fascinating it's at the center and especially when you're talking about like 97 98 99 the the hype leading up to Phantom Menace, like wh- where where I entered Star Wars fandom, where I first became a, really aware culturally of Star Wars, and and it's sort of the it's the genesis of what we now think of as fandom, which which I feel like is different in so many ways. Like I know with with Star Wars dot com, that was you you guys released uh, many people I, I'm sure have remember trying to download the uh, the trailer to the Phantom Menace that teaser trailer. Um, yes, you, but you guys are, were, were you guys just kind of making it up as you went along? Was there a grand plan for like making Star Wars, you know, invent internet fandom? Cause that's basically what happened at the time. That was my job. So my boss was Jim Ward, who had a, he had brilliant original plans of how to make Star Wars more broadly culturally accepted than just in nerd fandom. So he got us in InStyle magazine. In you know Vogue and Popular Mechanics, um, I was in the cover story of Popular Mechanics. He said, "What, well, David? You're doing these cutaway books in the evening." So in the evening, I go home from Skywalker Ranch and I'm writing these books for DK and creating all of this backstory and figuring out how the Millennium Falcon works and laying out all the corridors in the Blockade Runner. That's what I do on the evenings and weekends. And Jim Ward had seen this and he said, "What is all this stuff? I, I, you can we can make something out of this. I bet Popular Mechanics would print this." And he calls them up and they come out and they do print it. And you know, I'm interviewed for that. So Jim Ward had this idea of of getting Star Wars more broadly lodged in public consciousness, but it was my job to make it work for the internet, and we had nothing before it. We I, I had to build StarWars.com from pretty much nothing, and so when we created that trailer, I'm the creative consultant for that trailer. Mark Merka is the editor, I'm the creative consultant, and we cut that thing, and it was a we cut that trailer for the movie we wanted to see. We knew the real movie was not quite what we made it appear to be, but we knew what the fans wanted, and we wanted to tell them, guys, there are people in here who know what you want. 
we're going to create the trailer to let you know there are people in this production who understand what you want. And it's, you know, George was raising children at the time. So his sensibility was skewing younger at a time when fans like myself were getting older. So there was a disconnect there. You know, we, sure. we, those who had grown up with, with a franchise were looking for deepening. And George was starting at the beginning with, with kids. So I understand what he was trying to do, but there was, you know, there were, there were people that were frustrated at, at, at what he was doing. And I was trying to bridge it for every audience. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to welcome everybody. So we cut that trailer and, and carefully tried to build that as an internet event. And I got Steve Jobs saying that, you know, this was the biggest download internet event in the history of the internet. That was my site and my trailer. That was so mm. exciting. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Right? Long, be long before YouTube was a thing. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. Because you didn't have those alternatives and you know, the download, you're waiting for the down phone so you can see the thing. It was so before high speed connection. So everybody was a lot more patient, but yeah, this is, but listen, we, if, if people remember, this is, I remember this is the era of Napster and my dad, like downloading a bunch of, of mamas yes. and papas, <laughs> pirating a bunch of mamas and papas <laughs> and Bob Dylan albums. So, Yes, it was a different world, but like we, you know, that's where we, we learn things about how do you build an internet audience. So I would, I had this huge audience where everything that I wrote, that I or my assistants or the writers that worked with me, everything we wrote, we could track the statistics and like just the idea of developing a site by tracking the statistics and checking engagement and all of that. We were pioneering that stuff. You know, we, we would, would do these things and do analytics and say, oh, okay, if I've got the same content, but I parcel it out in little bits, you know, every two days, that gets me a bigger audience in the end than if I dump the same content all at once. And, you know, nowadays, this is just standard operating procedure, right? But nobody knew it back then. We had to figure it out. Yeah, no, that makes, I mean, it makes sense. I, I Did you, so as we actually move forward into the, the, the filming did you find yourself on the set of um, of the prequels, any of the prequels? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And so I would go over to Leaveston a couple of times. Okay. And I would do interviews. So I did interviews with the stunt coordinator and had Nick Gillard train me in lightsaber combat. And I worked all of that training into an article for Star Wars Insider where I created the seven different forms of lightsaber combat and, and developed that more in one of my DK visual dictionaries. So, I mean, the, the opportunities were just extraordinary. I mean, I learned that on the Nemoidian battleship uh, set, mm. you know, and, and Nick's, Nick's teaching me, you know, duck, turn, dodge, parry. And, and then I go and talk to Ewan McGregor about, you know, what are you, what are you putting into Obi-Wan Kenobi? And then talk to Liam Neeson about midichlorians and, um, you know, and hang out with Natalie Portman and, you know, watch her in a battle scene. And she's putting her face around the corridor, around a, a column and the column's getting blown up and action scenes. I mean, that was just, that was what it was like. It was incredible. Was, um, what was the, I guess, anything that jumped out to you about the, the, the culture on set of The Phantom Menace? Because I know, in, inevitably, you know, whenever we're talking about the prequels, you have to at least pay homage to some of the backlash. And you sort of alluded to it when you're talking about the, uh, the trailer. Mm -hmm. But was there, was there a difference in the culture at Lucasfilm, maybe even the culture on set versus Phantom Menace versus later as, as uh, after the movie came out and prepping for Attack of the Clones? Well, like... It, the, when you show up to work on the production, one of the first things that would happen is you get locked in a room and you handed the script because you've got to get up to speed. And as soon as I read the script, I foresaw everything that happened about, you know, there's this is not going to be just a, a film that straight makes everybody happy. There's going to be issues because George is making this for a young audience and we see it as a multi-audience film. But he's very much shooting for kids because he wants that audience to grow with the, with the merchandising. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it worked he, by the way, I'm, I'm proof of that, but <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew what he was doing. You got to hand it to the man knew what he was doing. I think George Lucas is at least three different kinds of genius. He's a creative genius. He's a technological genius and he's a business genius. And it's, it's truly impressive that I got to, you know, be in a cafeteria with this guy. And he, like, I had lunch with him and three other people at the table once and just, he was that accessible, so he's an extraordinary man and tremendously talented. But when I'm reading the opening crawl and the taxation of the outlying trades routes is in dispute <laughs> and a lot of the other things, I realized this is not, not what I was expecting. And I knew there were going to be issues, and so I had to choose how to handle that in the marketing. 
And the road that I chose was never to lie to anyone about what was happening. I would talk about Doug Chang is a brilliantly talented guy. You're going to love these designs. I would say Ben Bird is back. You're going to love these creative sounds and things like that. I wouldn't, I never would say this is exactly the movie you've been waiting for because I knew it wasn't for everybody. And eventually I got to talk to George in his office. I got him all to myself for an afternoon to ask him every question I ever wanted. Can you believe that? The only Star Wars artifacts he had in his office were the Dejaric chess figures. Everything oh, wow. else is like 1920s mission style. Yeah. Fascinating. And that was when I finally understood that Star Wars had never been what he intended it to be. Hmm. What it ended up being that was so captivating for me, it was gritty and realistic and something I could believe in. That was an accident of people not understanding what he really had in mind. He wanted light and fun and, and you know, a little bit silly. That's what he liked. And it was just so difficult to make Star Wars that it, it just didn't quite come out that way. So almost so you know that i love that i worship was so fulfilling and inspiring to me that it was never that rewarding for george mm. he had much more satisfaction making Phantom phantom menace than he did making new hope so i came to understand that well okay so what star wars works for so many different audiences this is part of the creative genius that a lot of it is rorschach you know we're seeing in it what we want to see and you can see different things in it at different ages yeah so you see the prequels when you're at just the right age to see that you're yeah. not disappointed you're having a great time right and that's fine because george's creative genius was so deep that it makes that possible and so it's not going to be what everybody wants all of the time but the fact that it allows so many different points of entry for so many different ages and so many different life situations that's the difference between genius and just somebody who's good at cranking out media yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because George has has always been so like probably the most critical person of of the original Star Wars, and you know I'm sure that's why he went returned to it time and time again to update, change, make the edits that he always always kind of almost obsessively wanted to do because it just never was quite what what he had in his head. It, it's it's more than that. I mean, he was really frustrated. He had a miserable time. I mean, he was fighting a lot of the crew, which is really too bad. They, they just A lot of them didn't support him. There were people like John Barry in the art department and Roger Christian who were very supportive. But there were a lot of the crew that did not believe in what he was doing. And he had an uphill battle. And so he didn't get on film what he intended. And so he was always surprised that we all loved it so much. But <laughs> he, had, he had assembled this team of brilliant people working at the top of their game. Ralph McQuarrie and John Mallow's costumes. I mean, Ralph McQuarrie's production design. It's steeped in, in his knowledge of Boeing and NASA and John Mallow's knowledge of military history that he brought to the costume design. And Ben Burt's completely original sounds. And John Williams' music transformed the mu movie into something that you could take seriously. And John Steers disappointed in a lot of ways, but he made the laser battles and things so yeah vivid and realistic i mean it was visceral star wars was visceral because of all these people contributing and we didn't have that again later because those were not things that were important to george so yeah. the you know we get to phantom menace and we've got a big battle in in the the naboo hangar and you know we're not seeing blank charges blown out of these guns and we're not seeing big heavy you know sterling submachine guns like roger christian dressed for star wars for the stormtrooper rifles we're seeing you know little toy guns and we're not seeing things that fire blanks and fill the air with smoke because that viscerality is, is a pain. You know, you, you can't just say cut and start over. You've got to blow all the smoke out of the set. So these things are, mm. are difficult. And it was a difficulty that, you know, George was happy to dispense with. So yeah. what Star Wars was was partly accidental, but it was accidental because there were geniuses involved. And George got to remake Star Wars with Jedi in many ways, and that was closer to what he wanted. But Phantom Menace was round three at telling the Star Wars story, and that was the one he was most happy with. And understanding that, realizing that, that's like, okay, the guy who's behind all of this, he's not the total author of what spoke to me. It was this you know, joint production. It's, it, sure. it's the composite work of so many people. That's the nature of movies. But it was interesting for me to finally understand that. I don't know. Does that make sense? No, it does. It's, it's, it's one of those things that it's, um, it fascinates me because it's such a distinct chapter of Star Wars that I find fascinating. And I, I think it's, it's undercovered um, in a way that the, the you know, I, obsession, rightfully so, 
of the uh, original trilogy and the behind the scenes and the documentaries that we've gotten over the years. The one we only really get that one, uh, the Phantom Menace had this incredible behind the scenes documentary that w- was released with the home video release um, in the beginning, the making of episode one. And it really chronicles the, the hardships and the ins and outs of that movie production. And, and it's, I've always been sad that we never got one of those for episode two or episode three. Well, John Shank, I think that's his documentary, right? I mean, he dumped an incredible investment of his life energy into making that. And that's why it was not something you could just you could just order up another one of those. I mean, that's a real filmmaker, you know, creating a work of art with with a lot of his life energy. So um, that's why we were lucky enough to see that. But Mm. wow, what a lot of work that was. I had I I had no idea. Well, I I have to take you uh, maybe take a a bit of a left here. I turn here. I know. Um, man, I wish, I wish we could have you for another hour and we'll just have to have you back on the show to, to talk more. Cause there's so many amazing stories I'm sure that you have, but I have to ask you now, I will bring it forward to the present. We won't do entirely, uh, reminiscing, but, um, you, you talk about key figures like Rick McCallum, like Steve Sansweet, um, like yourself, like what was, what was the transition? I know, I think, uh, your transition uh, away from a more active role at Lucasfilm probably happened before the Disney purchase, but, um, what, what is just your, your thoughts on, on Lucasfilm's evolution into the Disney era and the, and the recent films? What would you say are some of the maybe similarities we don't think about? And, and obviously there've been a lot of discussion on the differences. Hmm. Well, the similarities are harder to talk about. Um, I mean, it was it was a change that was so fundamental that we didn't we didn't we felt something was happening, but we didn't recognize how fundamental that change was going to be. Because mm-hmm. with with the prequels, you know, there those of us who came to them with a lot of expectations might be disappointed in this or that place, but it's still George telling a story that he believed in. Yeah, and and that gave them. And an integrity and an authenticity that I could always respect. So even when it wasn't what I would choose, you know, I, I felt like this is this is somebody's genuine artistic vision. He's not creating a product just to sell tickets or to sell merchandise. And the once it gets into the, the hands of, of you know, when things are run by committee, it's it's just a different it's gonna be different. And we not all of us understood how fundamental those changes were going to be. And so it's it's really very different. I mean, the operation at Skywalker Ranch and ILM, I mean, the you saw practically everybody at something like the Halloween parties, which were just legendary, and you'd see everybody that worked for Lucasfilm and ILM. But even that was not that many people. It was it was a small operation where you could know most people. And, you know, there's Dennis Muren over there, and there's Don Bees. Hey, Don. You know, he's the guy running R2-D2, as well as being a brilliant model maker. He creates the, the cutaway lightsaber that I designed. You just you got to know everybody, and it was there was a lot of family sense to it. That that's how those movies were were produced. It was not at all an impersonal corporate situation, and so that was a huge change. And that's why there was so much personnel turnover between the the two. I don't know what you would say regimes. <laughs> sure. Um, so it just it it became a really different approach, and Disney brought to it tremendous power. Um, they got you know, resources that were extraordinary. Um, they've got the ability to interpret Star Wars in terms of the parks, which is wonderful and powerful. Um, but it, it is a fundamentally different approach. And that's, you know, where we can have movies that take us in one direction and then the next movie backtracks on that. And that's 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 hard when we're investing ourselves in, in these, these entertainments that are more than entertainments because the modern world has developed something that people engage with very deeply because we can put the work of so many creative people on the screen at once. I mean, these legions of special effects people now that you see in the credits, but all of the other things that go into making these movies were concentrating creativity into a space of two hours. So of course this is powerfully engaging and it's, you know, we, we, this is something that we humans are wired to do is to experience stories and to have our lives enriched that way. And it's uh, for those of us for whom Star Wars is important, you know, this is not messing around. This is something important. It changes the color of your life. It changes the values that you're taught. I mean, I, I went and did that in Tunisia because Star Wars A New Hope told the truth that when you stop blaming everybody else for your limitations luke luke's complaining right i can't get off this planet i have to please my uncle all of that's his choice but he's blaming people he's in victim mode 
And he gets his chance, but he, he won't take it until he's pushed by tragedy. But once tragedy pushes him into it, he realizes when you take responsibility for your life, you can pursue your dreams, you can step up, mm. you can accomplish more than you thought was possible. That was a truth that George encapsulated in that movie, and it, it gave me the courage to do things that I would not have had without those movies. That's changing people's lives. That's not just entertaining them for two hours. Yeah. So that's what Star Wars makes possible when it's a myth. And for its for any whatever weaknesses you want to point out, George was trying to give us a myth. And I I didn't always feel that, that the Disney operation was taking the responsibility of hey, we we are creating a myth to help people understand what's important, to discern what's what's true from not true in life and valuable and not valuable. Um I felt like it was taken more in an entertainment direction. So the things can be very impressive, but I don't come away feeling as en enriched and feeling like a better person for having experienced these stories. But, yeah, but you know, Star Wars is, is for everybody. So there's there's points of, of entry for every direction. And I, I love that it's it speaks in different ways to different people. That is true. And it is it's one of those things you, you mentioned towards the beginning of the show of of how Star Wars is this thing that it's kind of a Rorschach test. It's something that I, every it, it's something that it has something for everyone, but not, not unlike you, like Star Wars informs sort of my worldview and 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 Luke Skywalker's journey. Um it inspired me in much the same way. It's like a big part of um, my military career, like uh, and why I chose uh, to join the military. That's like something I never really would have thought of. But, but like, tell me, tell me, how did that affect you? How, how did that play out in your life? Uh, well, it's, it's funny because I always remember growing up having the cacophony of options that are presented to you, just because we live in an incredible time, and I had a great family support system, and I'm the youngest of six kids. So what that okay. <laughs> so what that translates to is in this it's great support system and big family uh, all of my older siblings were kind of were going off and 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 pursuing their careers and when it came time to to get around to me I, I had absolutely no pressure from 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 the parents which is great it's cuz I was probably the one of the most creative kids um, but it allowed me, it gave me a lot of freedom to just kind of mess around and figure out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. And, mm -hmm. um, and because of that, it's like where I, I'm sure like some of my oldest siblings will recount my, my dad being uh, very, very much about, uh, pursuing your education and your career and setting yourself up for success and responsibility. And like, that's very much my dad. But by the time I came along, they realized, eh, he'll figure it out, <laughs> which, which, which is why I'm the classic youngest kid. Right. Um, but a, a big part of that was like, I, I was passionate about creative things in these projects, podcasting, um, writing. These are all things that I love doing. And I was like, well, maybe I should do a career, but I always, this is lingering in the back of my mind. I'm like, I always liked the idea of military service. And I'm, I'm an old fashioned patriot in many ways. And I, and I considered it, here, um, here. um I, I considered it back and forth. But, um, when I, when I, I, I spent a couple years after high school, just kind of working with my brother doing construction while I figured out what I wanted to do. And I eventually, I took that leap. I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a try. Cause like, I, I always had this sort of binary idea of, do I need to, do I have to, do I, if I choose a military career, am I, am I giving up my creativity and, and these other passionate projects and hobbies that I have? And mm -hmm. the answer I realized was mm -hmm. no, like you can do both. And, and that sort of, I guess yes. that worldview of like, of chasing after your dreams and not limiting yourself, that's something right out of Star Wars and the, and the Joseph Campbell myth. Yes, it is. Um, so. And we need stories to, to interpret that stuff for us. It's, you, you can hear somebody tell you exactly the same truths, but they don't resonate. They don't get into your soul in the same way if you haven't experienced it through a story that's meaningful to you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then not, now, like this last year, um, getting married, like there are whole new stories that I grew up with that have a completely different kind of meaning. The idea of Tolkien's illustration of the importance of home and family mm -hmm. and 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 a and a place that is is yours and and comfort and fellowship like those are themes that i you know just kind of became a part of uh w the way i saw the world growing up but then of course now uh that i married like those are things that i value way more on the other side so you sort of have the the young man's call to adventure side and then you have the like the sam gamgee side of me too so it's funny that like these stories these mythologies inform inform ourselves growing up and then play out throughout our lives as we go through different seasons. So, yeah. 
That's so cool to hear that. I, I'm really glad to hear that those those sagas speak to you as well. Um, they certainly do for me. And I mean, and clearly they influence George quite a bit. So yeah. it's not that surprising that someone um, for whom Star Wars resonates should uh, find themselves learning from Middle Earth as well. That's really cool. Yeah, for thanks sure. for sharing that. No, absolutely. No, I, well, I'll tell you what. We're we're gonna we're gonna end it on that note. I uh, I can't believe it. it's been such a fun fun hour plus talking to you, man. And 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 you've shared so much, not just. Uh, an incredible depth of knowledge on on something that I find incredible. And if you haven't had the chance, if you're listening to this now and you haven't taken the opportunity, especially even some of the stateside locations, um, listen, we're in a world where, you know, going to a Disney park, like if you're in California, that's not a thing. But you know what you can do? Pack the family in a van and, and go up to the Redwoods. Like, it's a great opportunity to, to chase the outdoors. And um, if you're a big Star Wars fan, it's it's an experience that... Um, I think many would find surprising. So, um, uh, David, tell everybody where they can find you online, maybe what you've been up to recently, and they can follow up uh, with you if they enjoyed hearing the podcast. Absolutely. You can follow me. You can follow up with me at davidwestreynolds.com, and you'll find there links to the Archaeology of Star Wars, which is one of the talks that I give, and that'll link you to a site that talks about my work in Tunisia and my work is sharing it. And soon I'm going to be sharing more of the video content from that uh, on YouTube, and you'll be able to find information about that um, through the site. That, so start with davidwestreynolds.com and look for the archaeology of Star Wars. But you can also see me on Facebook at David West Reynolds PhD. Nice. We'll, we'll leave links to that uh, in the notes for the podcast. If you're like uh, listening to this on the Apple Podcast app or Pocket Cast or something like that, Spotify, just swipe left, look at the notes. We'll have the links for everything that, you're, uh, that we've been talking about uh, here in the segment. And uh, sir, thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure, Riley. I've uh, enjoyed the talk very much. 